You can go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. So yesterday, Amy and I were down, we went down to pick up Kimberly. Yesterday was Kimberly's last day out down at the Ark Encounter. So we drove down to pick her up and we stopped at this little restaurant called Bean's Cafe and Bakery. And it's right in Dry Ridge, which is about 15 minutes north of where the Ark is at. And so we, you know, a little nice little cafe and restaurant, so we were sitting in there and Afterwards, I went to the, down to the bathroom and I came back and Amy was standing talking to two women off in the corner. And they, had both, they both work at the Ark. And what was interesting is they had, well, one of the women had met Kimberly. So Amy had kind of mentioned our daughter works down there and um, the woman had worked in guest services. And so she somehow had met Kimberly and remembered Kimberly. Didn't know Kimberly real well, but had met her. And so we talked for probably... How long? Half hour, maybe. Um, and what was remarkable is, so the woman, uh, Amy was talking to one woman, and I was talking to the other one that was there, and she was kind of giving me her life story, which was kind of interesting. Um, she grew up in a kind of an abusive home, and um, just a lot of mental issues, a lot of physical issues. She had developed um, some different uh, mental mental challenges, and she had developed an eating disorder and some other things. And she's like, you know, mom didn't know really what to do, and so I had seen a couple of different psychologists, and, you know, they, they put me on this drug, and they tried to help me with this. And she's like, and a lot of that stuff just really started making things worse, and I was, you know, in despair. And um, so she kind of just went on and talked a lot about that. But then she said, you know what made the difference? She's like, I met a woman who basically, in her words, were radically discipled me. She sat me down with the word. She talked with me about Jesus Christ. And she said, I began to learn from this woman's counsel that Jesus Christ and God's word is sufficient. And that's not a, that's, you know, a word that we sometimes hear. We, we toss it around, but we don't always know what it means. But it means that it's, it's enough. And... Um, and she admitted, she's like, look, I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't some people that struggle and might need some help with, with drugs and other things. She said, but what I was lacking in my life was the sound understanding of who Jesus Christ was and that God's word was sufficient. She said, and so over the course of time, I went off my meds and she said, and then the, the eating, eating disorder ultimately sort of dissipated. And, you know, now she's married and she has kids. And um, her husband she met in a recovery center. He was an addict. And um, life is just radically different. But it was really neat just talking to her because she just kept saying, you know, the, the word is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And that's what changed. And everything else I did before that didn't have the answers that I needed. And I thought that was interesting, the way God kind of works. So the illustration I had to start today I just threw out because this is a better one <laughs> and it's just neat how God kind of does that because it applies to what we're talking about here the reason that Paul wrote the book of Colossians is because the, the um, Colossians were struggling with that they had started with faith in Christ but were, were sort of being challenged and drawn away from faith in Christ alone as if he wasn't sufficient and so there were some, we don't know who they were, apparently some false teachers that had come in. Paul doesn't mention the false teachers like he does so, so um, strongly in something like First Timothy. But he does allude to what was happening, and they were being drawn away into a form of legalism. They were being drawn away into philosophy and man-made religion and people that had learned things through just their observation of the elementary world around us. They had gotten involved with some mystical practices, the visions of angels and the worship of angels and, and all that. They were puffed up in their pride and arrogance and so they were trying to draw these Colossians who had come to faith in Christ, they were trying to draw them away from that. That they needed more than that. And part of that was driven by just Greek thinking which is that you know the Greeks were very mystic in their religions anyway and, and these were Gentiles the, the church here at Colossus was primarily Gentiles they were Greeks they would have been steeped in Greek mythology and, and other things and there was these ideas that you could learn and know more about the God of the universe through these mystical esoteric practices 
And that was partly what they were being drawn into, and the word we hear tossed around is that maybe there was an early form of something called Gnosticism. Gnostic comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And so somehow they were thinking, we need more to really understand God, to really understand Jesus Christ. There's more out there that we haven't been told, and we can acquire that through all these religious practices. And I shared with you last week how Hank Hanegraaff did something very similar you know, faith in Christ wasn't quite enough. He needed those practices of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the sacraments because somehow through this process of theosis, you could genuinely experience God and the feeling and the emotions and the experiences that go along with that. There's so much more there. And Paul has to challenge that. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today because last week through the introduction we sort of laid the groundwork for what was happening today we're going to dive into Paul's first challenge to them and what we're going to do as we go through this series is every week I've, I don't always put titles on my messages but I've done that for this series because everything Paul does is to focus them back on what's found in Jesus Christ and so every one of the messages will be something found in Jesus Christ and today what we're looking at is the faith, love and hope found in Jesus Christ the faith, hope and love found in Jesus Christ the outline for our time today is the gospel is the true source of faith, love and hope The gospel bears fruit wherever it is preached. And the gospel cannot be learned if it's not shared. So those are our three points from today. Let's go ahead and dive into the beginning of this. Let's read the first five verses of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren who are in Christ, who are at Colossus, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul begins his letter here by expressing his thankfulness. That's standard for Paul. He often starts his letters with thankfulness for God and praying for the saints. So he does that here as well. And he specifically targets three things that he's thankful for. We've already read those. Faith, love, and hope. Now, you know those words. If you know your scriptures, you know those three words are often coupled together. We find those frequently together in the scriptures. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 3. Just, you can just read along, or hear, hear this as we read along. We'll have you turn to some other passages, but we'll give your fingers a break here. You don't have to turn to these. Just listen quietly. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in your prayers, or in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Galatians chapter 5 verses 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And so you see this combination of faith, hope, and love. One more, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 24. The writer says, Let us draw near with a sincere faith and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Again, we find these three words together and you'll find that repeated in many passages of Scripture. They they go together. Faith, hope, and love. And the reason for that, I believe, is because these three things exemplify the Christian life, and they certainly exemplified the Colossians because Paul starts that way. He thanks the Lord for their faith, for their love, and for the hope that they had. So we're going to go ahead and break these down. We're going to look at these things because I'm sure we would all say, we know what faith is, we know what love is, we know what hope is, but let's go ahead and dive into that and take those apart a little bit. The simplest definition of faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It's that simple. The thing we have to understand about faith is that it goes beyond mere intellectual belief. I know an awful lot of people that say, I'm a Christian. I know an awful lot of people that say, well, I have faith. But it's merely just an intellectual exercise, an intellectual statement. When you look at surveys, you know, I've got some some things here we'll share in a little bit. At one point, 90% of Americans claimed to be Christian. Which means that intellectually... They believed in Christian things, but I don't believe that at any point in our history, 
90% of Americans were genuinely saved, God-fearing individuals. So it's more than an intellectual thing. It involves trust and confidence. It impacts our behavior. And ultimately, if you look into the scriptures and you understand and you study what faith means in the Old and the New Testament, it always results in action. It is never just an intellectual thing. I remember when I was a young kid, I'm still to this day afraid of heights. Well, I'm not afraid of heights. I tell people this all the time. I'm afraid of falling from high places. There's a difference. Um, If I go up into a high place and there's absolutely no possibility of falling, I'm fine. But if there's even this smidgen, you know, up at a skyscraper and glass windows and I can go up to that glass window and... There's a slight possibility the guy that put it in place might not have secured it properly, you know. If there's even the slightest, I'm not comfortable, okay. But I can go to high places as long as there's no possibility of falling. I do not like heights. Well, I remember we went down to, we used to drive down to Florida all the time because my mom was from Florida. Grew up in Hialeah. So when we were growing up, we would drive down there every few years and we'd usually take three weeks. Because it would take a week to drive there and back because it was a three-day trip. And so we'd go down, and um, we always, because we would take three days to go down, when we would get down to the mountains, we would go to some of those mountain places, and one of them was a place called Lookout Mountain. We would see all the signs driving down there. And um, so I remember we went there one time, and there was a gorge that we were walking through, and there was this old, rickety, really rickety rope bridge. I think even some of the slats were broken. And the guide was taking us that route. And I remember standing on the side going, I am not going on that bridge. Because it was a drop from there. I mean, it was, I mean, you couldn't have survived. I mean, it was hundreds of feet. And I just remember having to, you know, follow my family and walk out on that. Well, that's a good example of faith. You know, I was finally able to walk across it because I had to really ultimately muster up the confidence that okay, I've seen a handful of people walk across it. Nobody's ever died. The guy made sure he told us that. Okay, finally had to make a decision. Can I trust the guide? Can I trust this bridge? And certainly I did, and now I wasn't comfortable. But I would not have stepped out on that. I would not have walked across that old rickety rope bridge if I really didn't think that I would be okay. And sometimes that's the way it is with faith, right? You know, we intellectually know it. We don't always feel it in our heart. But when we step out and we do it, when we trust the intellect, if you will, when we trust what we know to be true, that's, in many respects, faith. And faith in Christ is no different. You either believe that he's going to save you from your sins or you don't. You either believe that he's going to make a difference in your life or you don't. But there's an expectation that something is going to change because it's not just an intellectual thing. And so... As Paul is looking at the Colossians here, he sees the faith that they have in Christ. Now, the other thing we have to understand about faith is that there always has to be an object of faith. You know, faith in faith is not faith. I'm a, I think I've told you this before. There's certain phrases people use that sometimes make my skin crawl, and one of them is, I'm a person of faith. I hate that phrase. My, I mean, when I hear somebody say that, I'm a person of faith. My first thought is I want to shake them and go, faith in what? Because most often it's faith in my faith. Now, I know even Christians will say that. So I don't, if you've used that phrase before, forgive me. But faith in faith is not faith. Okay? It's not a proper object. What Paul is talking about here is their faith, notice what it says in verse 4, faith in what? In Christ. He's the object Now, in the example of the rope bridge, I had to place my faith in a number of things. Faith in the guide, faith in that bridge. Okay, That's what faith requires. When it came to the Colossians, it was their faith in Christ. Now, it's important because as we go through the letter here, the Colossians were being tempted and challenged to place their faith in some other things. In many respects, I would probably say that it was faith in Jesus plus Uh, They weren't abandoning faith in Christ, but it's faith in Jesus plus, Paul says, man-made religion. Elsewhere he says in mystical practices. He also says in religious rites and false wisdom and knowledge. They were placing their faith in these other objects. 
And as we know about faith in Christ, it's not faith in Christ plus. Paul's going to make the case that faith in Christ is enough. It is sufficient. It's, you don't need Jesus plus other things. All of those things that Paul is going to address in this letter that they were placing their faith in or being drawn to are distractions. They are designed by the enemy to draw us away from faith in Christ alone. Did you recognize that phrase? Faith in Christ alone. Everything we need for salvation, everything we need for salvation has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. There's nothing more that we need to do. We don't need faith in Jesus plus something else. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Having obtained our introduction by faith into God's grace in which we stand, because we have been saved through faith in Jesus, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not the result of works. Why? So that nobody can boast. God did a really cool thing. He said, I'm going to make it so that salvation is all me. I'm going to accomplish it all. You just have to place your trust in me. Why? I don't want you boasting. I don't need you standing before me saying, look what I did. You can't do it anyway. So God made it easy. All we've got to do is place our faith in Christ. Not, well, I'll start with Jesus and I'll add these other things. But unfortunately, that's what many Christians do. The Colossians were being tempted with that. I mentioned last week Hank Hanegraaff. For some reason, faith in Jesus wasn't enough. Now, he would probably argue, well, my faith is in Jesus. Yeah, but, remember what I, what I shared last week about Eastern Orthodoxy? Faith is not required by you or by the priest even. Because it's the rites themselves that save. So while Hank may say, I've got faith in Jesus. If it's faith in Jesus plus other things, it's not faith in Jesus. Because what you're saying is, Jesus isn't sufficient. Paul says that Jesus is. It's not by anything that we've done. So it's not Christian faith. It is not faith in Jesus alone. Now that doesn't mean we don't do certain religious practices, but why do we do them? You know, we get together here and we sing. Why do we sing? We're not receiving any special grace from God because we sing. It's not like we get a better, you know, gift of grace from Him because we sing. We sing to honor Him. We sing to celebrate Him. We sing because it pleases Him. Okay? It's not a work on our behalf. We don't do it because somehow if I don't do it, God's going to take away my salvation from me. Right? Again, so we do religious things. Paul's not saying we don't. Paul himself even fasted. Paul would be the first to tell you, I don't fast so that I get extra grace from God. There's a difference. So, Paul remembers their faith in Christ. He goes on to talk about their love. Look back at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now the focus of love here is on the saints. We, we know we're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. But here the focus is on what Paul saw in them when it came to their love for other believers. So we thank God for that. What did Jesus say in Matthew 26 about the two greatest commandments? What are they? How can we summarize all of the law and the prophets? What? To love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That was Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're all pretty good at loving ourselves, aren't we? Jesus, remember what he said about the world and what the world would think when they saw us love each other? Do you remember what that was? In fact, there's a song after that, right? They will know we are Christians, what? By our love, that's John chapter 13. It's by our love for one another that others will know that we're Christians. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that when it comes to faith, hope, and love, what's the most important of those three? Love. Yeah. Now faith, hope, love, abide these three, meaning they all three belong together. They exemplify, exemplify our life in Christ. But he says, but the greatest of these is love. And why does he say that? Because the other things that we exercise as Christians, if we do them, say all the spiritual gifts, for instance, in the context, he says, if you do all those things without love, you just make a noise. Love covers a multitude of sin. Again, which is why it's preeminent. 
that helps us to behave properly. It's interesting. If you really love your brother or sister in Christ, it's going to change your behavior towards your brother or sister in Christ, isn't it? And so, Paul is thankful because of the love. Now, turn to 1 John chapter 2. John gave us a warning about this. Not that you can't love too much, but that you can love too little. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you. He's not talking about love here, but Jesus has already given that command. So it's not really a new commandment, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Christ commanded that we love. But then he says, on the other hand, I am writing you a new commandment. Probably the idea here is that I'm freshening it for you. I'm reminding you of it. I'm bringing it back to your attention. Which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, in other words, in Christ, the one who says he's a believer, the one who says he has faith in Jesus, but yet he hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. Now what's interesting, scripturally speaking... We would sort of say, well, I don't hate. The problem is that hate is the absence of love. Which means if you don't love like Christ loves, then you hate. It's just pretty black and white. We don't like to think in terms of that. This one thing I appreciate about my daughter, Kimberly. She is very black and white. She'd be the first to say, if you don't love, you hate. That's just the way it is. Okay? When we sin against our brother or sister in Christ, it's an act of hate. Not really. You know, No, it is. Because if you don't love, you hate. That's just the way it is. We don't like that. It sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it. And so he says here, he who hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now in this context, I would argue that he's not talking about emotional love or hate. He's talking about behavior. That through our behavior, we either love our brothers and sisters in Christ or we hate them. And again, it sounds pretty drastic to say that if you don't love, you hate. But in the reality, that's really what it amounts to. And we don't like that because we think of hate as this emotional, raging thing. It's not what's being addressed here. It's your behavior towards others. It really is. And so, it's stark. I'm not saying that, you know, if you sin against your brother or sister in Christ unintentionally, that you hate them, that's not the point here. He's really challenging his readers to love one another, to serve them like Christ, because if they don't, then you're not loving them. And certainly when you sin against them, that is an act of hate. It's driven from a selfish place, is it not? And again, that sounds kind of harsh, because we like to look at things on on a spectrum, you know? I'm not as bad as Hitler... You know what? This may shock some people, but we all were as bad as Hitler. We may not have done what Hitler did, but scripturally, sin condemns. Period. That's the reality of it. And likewise, geez, Hitler could have been saved had he given his life to Christ in spite... Paul was a murderer, but God saved him anyway. While we were yet sinners. While we were enemies of Christ, God saved us. And so the reality of it is, sin is sin is sin. And it's usually an act of hate. And what Paul is reflecting on here with the Colossians, is he's saying, I'm thankful for the love that I see in you towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is something that exemplifies, or is supposed to exemplify us as Christians. So our faith should exemplify us. Our love for other brothers and sisters should exemplify us. When he went through COVID, one of my friends mentioned, well, you guys know him, John Haller. You know, he's got thousands and tens of thousands of followers with his YouTube videos and other things. And he remarked one time, he said, Mike, I have never seen so much vitriol among Christians going through this COVID thing because of the differences of opinions on COVID and on government and on the vaccines and on the politics. And he's like, the vitriol. I've seen some of that myself. I was, Amy, we were... We were out at, uh, just eating some ice cream on the, on the patio last night and I was flipping through. She had gone in to get something. She came back and I was flipping through my phone. I was reading through an eschatology forum in Facebook that I'm a part of. 
And she made, she goes, what do you know? I'm so told her, and I'm like, I just kept chuckling to myself. I'm like, man, the way these people are ripping each other. You know, one guy um, was mentioning pre-trib stuff, and just the way that he, I mean, he was anti-pre-trib. He was, I think, probably a post-tribulation guy. And the way he was just, I mean, the heretics, and we better pray for their souls, and just, you know, the, the vitriol coming out of his mouth. And I'm like, Really? It's not like they're denying Christ. There's, there's some flexibility. There's some area. I mean, you know where I've kind of, you know, I taught on, on the, pre, on the um, mid-trib, which is probably where I sit right now. But most of us recognize within eschatology that we don't have all the pieces of the puzzle and we need to be gracious with the difference of opinion. It's very different if somebody came up to me and said, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Okay, we'll have a discussion about that. And probably a pretty stern one. And I might even call him a heretic if he said that. But I'm not going to call somebody that believes in pre-trib a heretic or post-trib a heretic. And I would hope that nobody would call me a heretic because I believe in probably a mid, I mean a um, pre-wrath position, right? But the vitriol, and I see that all the time in the eschatology forums. It's just pretty shocking. And you'll see people every once in a while saying, come on, dudes. We're supposed to love each other. Let's just disagree amicably here. Let's behave like Christians. And then people will rip on him for saying that. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love the people there that will say, look, we can confront. There's a way to do it in love. And they're right. And so Paul here is just reminding them. He's thankful for the love that they have towards one another. That appears to be an area that they were probably excelling. Now what's interesting to me about that is, had they continued to go down the path that they were, I suspect that just like their faith would not have been just in faith in Christ alone, but in other things, their love towards one another probably would have changed because elsewhere Paul talks about how false teaching does that, causes division, frustration, anxiety. It divides people. And so that would have changed as well. Let's look at the third one here. The last word that exemplifies our Christian life we're supposed to is our hope. Go back to verse 5 now. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. You notice that the first two, their faith and their love, are a result of hope. Isn't that interesting? You would think it would be the other way around. The hope is a result of faith. And you can make that argument from the rest of scriptures. What, what Paul is talking about is the faith that he saw in them currently, the way that it had been expressed, was a result of their hope. Have you ever thought about that? Christians who are the most hopeful, that truly understand hope, it impacts their faith in Christ. There are people I know that I look at and say, man, that is a man. I mean, look at the faith that that person has. And it's ultimately tied to their hope when they recognize their hope. And so it's not that hope doesn't result from faith. It does. But man, when you recognize the hope you have, how that impacts your faith and what others see, I'll give you a great example. When I was saved. Remember, I was, I was Catholic. I didn't have much hope. I, didn't, I, I knew who God was and who Jesus was, but my life, was, I was miserable. I was severely depressed. I thought about suicide often. And when I was in college, there was a gentleman that I met who was involved with the Campus Crusade for Christ. His goal was to share the gospel with every man on my floor, 32 guys. That was his goal. And so he started to do that. And it irritated me because I wasn't interested in this Jesus freak. And so he would ask me, no, 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 he'd invite me to crusade me, no, 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 just stay away. Well, you, some of you know my testimony. Finally, this, after about six months of chasing me around, I finally had seen something in him that I wanted. And so I just went to him and I said, you've been wanting to talk to me about Jesus. I'm ready to listen. What do you want to tell me? And he sat me down, he shared the gospel, he went through the four spiritual laws with me. Very simple. It made sense to me. My greatest fear was death. My thought of death, I didn't think of hell a lot. What I thought of, I had seen a mummy in a museum one time. And my view of death was being trapped in a coffin. And because I'm claustrophobic, I literally go to bed at night and I wanted a, a nightlight on. I mean, I, it, it paralyzed me at times. And so when he shared with me the gospel, my first thought was, I don't have to spend eternity in a coffin. So I prayed. I went back to my room. I said, Jesus, I don't want to end up like that mummy. And so I, I prayed this prayer for fire insurance. It was sincere. I believed he could save me. I believed what Bob said. But here's what's really interesting about that. I pretty much forgot about it at that point. I said the prayer. I meant it. What about my life? And remember, I was severely depressed. Guys on my floor would come down to my room and see me crying in my room and try to console me. 
Well, so here I am, two weeks after that, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm studying and I'm tapping my pencil and I'm singing. And all of a sudden I stopped and I went, huh, I'm feeling pretty good. Looked at the calendar next to me, back in the day when you had to write your assignments down on a calendar. Hmm, I started thinking, I've been feeling pretty good for the last couple of days. Man, you know what? It's, when was the last time I was depressed? And I started thinking back about the last time that I was in my room weeping. I used to go out for walks at 3 o'clock in the morning around campus, bawling my eyes out, begging God to take away the pain. And I'm looking at the, I'm like, when was the last time I went out for a walk? Counted back two weeks. The last time I had gone out for a walk, the last time I remember being depressed, was the night before I prayed. And I tell you, it an overwhelming sense of emotion hit me. And I was like, oh my gosh. And the first thought in my head was, this is real. Jesus didn't just save me from that coffin. He can save me from my depression. He can save me from everything else. And I, I, got up from my, I got up from my desk and I went, try to find Bob. And I'm like knocking on doors. Where is Bob? Where is Bob? And they kept saying, he's down at Dave. Dave was my best friend. Dave got saved the same time I did. I didn't know it. I, so I finally went down to Dave's room and I just busted through the door. I knew it was calm because we shared that kind of stuff. And I punched it. I swung the door open and Bob was sitting on the floor with, with Dave and another friend of mine. And I said, Bob, I've been looking for you. I, I've got something to tell you. And he just, he just put up his finger and he went like this, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm like, what? And he's like, I know what you're going to tell me. And I said, what? And he's like, I know when you prayed to accept Christ. I never told Bob. I went, how did you know? And he's like, you haven't been depressed in two weeks. I saw a difference. You know what I felt? For the first time in my life, I felt hope. And you know, it was that hope that then radically changed my faith. So I placed my faith in Christ. That led to the hope. But it wasn't until I went, I have hope, that that faith became real to me. Where I finally went, this is real. Christ can help me, not just from the grave, but everything else. And that's the moment at which I said, I need, I need help. I want to be in a Bible study. I want to come to your meetings with Crusade. It, was, it, was, it wasn't that prayer that two weeks before, I, that saved me. That made a difference. Christ came into my life. But it was when I recognized the hope that came from that. That made a difference. And Paul is looking at these Colossians and he's saying, I, have, I, I see this. I am thankful because of the faith you have in Christ and the love you have. But more than that, because of the hope you have. Those things come from that hope. And Paul didn't want them to lose that. Some of the most unhopeful Christians I know are those who are tangled up with religion, thinking they need more than Christ. They've stepped away from what saved them and they don't recognize the hope and that Christ has done everything they need. They don't understand the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His Word. I have counseled people. I have pastored for years. And people have come to me with struggles and issues. And I'll try to share the Word with them, but they just they need something else. They seek help somewhere else. They ultimately don't believe that Jesus can help. Oh, he's enough to save me, but that, that's where it ends. Jesus is all about salvation from hell, nothing else. No! It isn't just about salvation from hell. And we'll get into that here in a moment. What's our takeaway from this? In these first few verses, Paul reminds us that genuine faith, hope, and love are found in one source. Jesus Christ. He gives not just faith, but he gives love. He changes our relationships. We're going to see that in a little bit. One of the the sermons we're going to work through here is that, I think I titled it, The New Relationships Found in Jesus. And it talks about husbands to wives and parents to children and slaves to masters, how Jesus Christ radically changes those relationships. It's more than just the grave. The Colossians had discovered and were experiencing genuine faith and hope and love because Paul says here in verse 5, because of the gospel, which you previously heard in the word of truth. Many try to find these things outside of a relationship with Christ. Our, church is filled with, our churches are filled with them. You know how many pastors I talked with this woman last night? She's like, you know, Mike, if more pastors would understand that they can counsel. They have the tools they need here. But so many of them are like, oh no, send you to some professional somewhere that's going to charge you $200 a visit. Again, not saying that there, there isn't some help sometimes found in those things. But the reality of it is, this is where we ought to start. Jesus is more than just a starting point. 
That's where genuine faith, hope, and love are found. That's where we should turn first, is our relationship with Christ. I want you to read one other verse with me. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. Look at what Peter says in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. You want grace and peace? He says they're multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. You want peace in life? You want to experience grace? You have to understand God and Jesus Christ. That's what Peter starts with. Why? Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to you, or to us, everything pertaining to, and he says two things here, life, that's secular, and godliness, that's spiritual. God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. Where? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is probably one of the most powerful verses when it comes to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, that doesn't mean that in Jesus Christ he'll pay our mortgage. Okay? What he's talking about here is life living. What we need for spiritual health, mental health, emotional health. He says God has given us what we need for that. Now, again, I'm not saying that... I mean, I'm, a, I'm an absolute confident believer that what happens in your stomach affects the way you think and feel. You know, I'm an example of that where... You know, I've struggled with the times where my head's not in the game when I eat too much Chinese food. You will notice it in the way that I think and speak. Because it, I've got an allergy to soy, it impacts me. And so what goes on in your gut and your health, you know, all affects our brain. Our brain is, a, is, a, is an organ, right? It can be broken. So I'm not discounting that there can be medical issues that, that cause things like depression and other things. But nine times out of ten, so much of that is what we think. We don't think properly about Jesus Christ and about God and, and what Jesus offers. And so even if we need additional help somewhere else, if you don't start there, it's a disservice. And that's kind of what this woman was sharing the other day. She's like, you know, um, what I really needed and nobody looked into was I needed somebody to teach me about Jesus Christ and to, in her words, radically disciple me. She said, change my thinking. Help me understand who I was, why I was behaving the way I was, and other things. And so first takeaway from this is that genuine faith, hope, and love are all found in Jesus Christ. In Christ. And you're going to see that phrase repeated throughout the book. In Christ. In Christ. With Christ. Through Christ. By Christ. Over and over and over. Why? Paul is trying to stress what we have in Christ. And so genuine hope, faith, and love are found in Christ. Now, the second thing that Paul does here is he reminds them that the gospel bears fruit whenever it's preached. Look at verse 6 which has also come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth it's interesting there's a passage in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return where there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which it intended. God does not speak without what he says, accomplishing exactly what he wants for it to accomplish. Do you believe that? God's word never goes out and returns void. It always has the intent that God implies. There's no greater demonstration of this than what we just read. Notice that Paul says that this gospel constantly bears fruit and is increasing wherever it went. He had already described some of the fruit, their faith, hope, and love. That's the fruit of this gospel that they had heard. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. Notice he says that the gospel continues to bear fruit. It increases, meaning it multiplies. And it did this among the Colossians. Remember, there were at least two other churches. We believe that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, went down into this particular region, and as a result, three churches were founded. Which means that the gospel had increased and multiplied. It would have started with one man, Epaphras, went to somebody else, and then it began to multiply and to spread. And so it was currently doing that among them, and Paul 
uses that to highlight this point that this is what the gospel does. And he says, it had been doing this, what? Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. A better way to understand that is when you came to fully understand God's grace and how it works. And so Paul says that the gospel constantly multiplies and increases wherever it is preached. Now, that made me start thinking about this. Is that still true today? We can look at the book of Acts and know that that was certainly the case. A couple of random dudes, right? Twelve dudes, if you include Matthias with that. And then Paul radically changed the world. Radically. From their preaching. Certainly it was true during the first century, but is that still true today? If we look at just the United States, we might be tempted to think it's not true. According to nearly every study by American researchers, Christianity is on a decline here in the United States. You can't argue that. It is. Plain and simple. Fifty years ago, I said 90% of Americans identified as Christians. Again, I don't believe they were all born again. But 90% of Americans back just 50 years ago said they were Christians. In 2020, that number dropped to 65%. It's even less today. Within a few decades, all the indicators suggest that Christians will, no longer, will ultimately be a minority in the United States. I think we already are. And this is at a time when some other religions are actually growing. But Christianity is shrinking here in the United States. Church attendance continues to decline here in the United States, most significantly among the young. They say on average now about 80% of youth that will graduate from the church this year will not return to church, at least in the near future. Now, trends seem to suggest that once they start having babies and families, some of them come back. Things become real. You have kids, you know that, right? <laughs> God, I need help. Many of them return back to the church. Not many of them, but some of them return back to the church. More churches close every year than open. On average, 4,500 churches in the United States close every year. 3,000 open. Most of these are large megachurches, multi-campus churches that are founded and started. And that's not just true in America, but it's true in much of the West. So when, if we look at just the United States and we look at just the West, we're kind of hard-pressed to say, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said the gospel's increasing. Here we see it seem to be decreasing. Why is that? If we look around the rest of the world, though, we see something radically different. They claim Islam is the fastest growing religion, but it's funny because when they do the studies, what they find is that it's not through conversion, it's through birth. They just like to make a lot of babies. If you look at conversions, the fastest growing religion in the world, based on conversions, people coming to know Christ, it's Christianity. Christianity makes more converts than any other religion in the world. By far. Which means that it is multiplying and increasing in other parts of the world. When it comes to conversions, that's just the truth. Latin America, Africa, and Asia are the fastest growing areas of Christianity today. Again, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. There are more Christians, born-again Christians now in Africa than there are in the United States. Plain and simple. And that number continues to grow. Another interesting thought, the Bible. In 1900, there were an average of 5 million Bibles produced every year. You know what that number is last year? Think about this for a minute. Books are selling less and less in many respects. There's a lot of other, you know, self-help type books, you know, that still sell. But more and more people are reading books on their Kindles and their iPads and stuff like that, right? And you've got Bible applications now. You come in, they say a lot of the millennials, when you come into church, you don't hear the pages flipping, you see lights and people's faces glowing because they're using it on their phone, right? So you would think Bibles would be printed less and less and less. Again, just... 120 years ago, 5 million Bibles a year. Last year, over 100 million printed Bibles. Most of those are going overseas. There's a demand for it. So what does this tell us here? For our takeaway, it kind of begs the question, why is Christianity shrinking in the West here in the United States, but growing expansively in other places? I'll read a couple of verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. For, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. What? According to the power of God 
1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. You notice how many times the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God? It changes lives. Paul says here in Colossians that it is increasing, multiplying, wherever it is preached, just as it had been in Colossus. So if we're not seeing the gospel do that here, bearing fruit and increasing here, then I'm going to propose the reason is the word of God, the gospel, probably isn't being preached here. Because I believe what the word says. If it were, Christianity would be growing here. It's that simple. A couple of years back, the Center for Faith and Culture published an article revealing how the gospel of the Bible has been replaced by three false gospels here in the United States. The prosperity gospel, the gospel of, or the personal gospel we call it, it's all about me. And finally, the political gospel. I think there, I think they were right. What you hear in so many churches today, Ed DeZago called me this week. We talked for probably a half hour. We talked about that very thing. How so many of our big, large churches aren't necessarily preaching the gospel. Many are preaching the gospel, but they're not discipling people. I came across an article just this week from Julie Royce. She's an investigative journalist on how the prosperity gospel is growing in mainline churches today. Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, that's what it's all about. That's not the gospel. It's a fake gospel. It's Joel Osteen. It's Joyce Meyer. So many others. The reason we don't see the gospel impacting and changing lives here in the United States like we used to is because we're not preaching the gospel anymore. We're preaching something else. Come into our church. We'll make you feel emotionally good. We'll move you with our music. We'll give you a 30-minute, feely good, watered-down version of something that comes from this book. We're not mentoring and discipling people. That's been shown time and time again. One of the largest megachurches in the nation for 20 years couldn't figure out why some were getting saved but nobody was growing and maturing in their church. And the only people getting saved were ones that were coming into their church on a Sunday morning. That was Bill Hybels' church. He admitted after 20 years, we're not doing it right. I believe Paul here. That the gospel, when it is preached, changes lives, impacts people. And the reason it's dying here is because we are not as a church preaching the gospel. Leads to the final thing that we learned from our passage this morning. And I'll wrap it up with this. The gospel can't be learned if it's not shared. Plain and simple. Look at verse 7. Notice that it, Paul says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. There's one very simple truth here. The reasons that the Colossians had faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. The reason why the gospel had multiplied and increased among them, and Paul could see it and then praise God for it and thank God for it, was because somebody took the gospel to him. That man was Epaphras. He was a faithful servant. And because of his faithfulness, I think about that. Where would I be today if we called him Beagle Lips Bob had not walked onto that dorm room his senior year, he was a fifth-year senior, went back to the dorms so that he could share the gospel. If he had not done that, where would I be today? I spent my life in church growing up, never heard the gospel. But because of the faithfulness of one man who refused to walk away when for six months I rejected him. No, he chose to be a faithful servant. And I learned the gospel from him. God did not design this world to preach the gospel itself from creation. Creation reveals who God is, but it requires the word of God to lead us to salvation. And so the final point is that the gospel can't be learned if it's not shared. I know it's kind of one of those duh moments, right? I mean, it makes sense. People don't hear the gospel, they can't believe it. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul says, how can they hear if nobody goes and tells them about Jesus Christ? The Colossians learned about the gospel from Epaphras. 
because he was a beloved fellow servant of Christ. He took it seriously. I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers here with this next statement and probably make some of you uncomfortable and squirm a little bit. The mission of the church, the body of Christ, is that we make disciples. Jesus made that clear. It isn't just evangelism, folks. Jesus wants disciples. He wants us to share the gospel, but he also wants us to teach them to obey. Ed Zagel used this interesting phrase, I've never been gifted as an evangelist. I've been radically challenged in the last decade or so to still try to function as an evangelist. I still pray daily for opportunities to share the gospel when God is faithful. But God has primarily used me within the church. And Ed said, our role is to be evangelists within the church, Mike. Meaning, people in the church still need to hear the gospel, you know. But the reality of it is that we are supposed to make disciples, and that begins with sharing the gospel. We can't make disciples. We can't sit in church on a Sunday morning and preach all the great things if people don't hear the gospel and get saved too. Now, here's the thing. We're not all called to be evangelists, meaning we're not all gifted that way. However, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, what? To everyone who asks you to give account of the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and reverence, he says. Jude, verse 3 of Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered. You know what that means? Every one of us has a responsibility. You may not be called to go and preach on the street corner. You may not be gifted as an evangelist. But you have hope. And the one thing you are called to is to always be ready to tell people why you have that hope. I don't know that we all do that. We're afraid, we're nervous, we don't want to be embarrassed or called out. So maybe I ruffle some feathers with that. But we are called to defend the gospel and we're called to always be ready to give a defense. Can I challenge you this morning and ask how often you're praying that God might give you that opportunity? I learned a number of years ago that because I didn't naturally evangelize, I realized I need to start praying. And so I do now. I pray every morning that God will open up a door somehow to allow me to talk to somebody because I am not an evangelist by gifting. I have not seen a lot of people come to Christ through my own ministry in my lifetime. But Paul says that some water, some plant, but God causes the increase. And so we all play a role. So your role may not be as an evangelist, but you know what? You've got neighbors and friends and family, co-workers, that look at you and can see or should see that you've got a hope Some of them need that. Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so he says what? Pray that God may send out workers. How often do you pray that God does that? That might not be you specifically, but how often do you pray that God would send workers out into the harvest to do that? So my challenge to all of us this morning is that we might be praying on a regular basis that God would give us opportunity to share our hope. I challenge you. Ask him. God, just... Open the door somewhere. Allow me just to share my hope. Maybe it's not a full-blown-on gospel presentation, but I want people to know around me that I'm saved, that I know Jesus, that I have hope and salvation. Maybe one of them is desperate, and maybe you will give me the opportunity. I challenge you. Start praying that. God has been faithful with my life in doing that. Everything from just sitting out in front of a wits and having some dude sit down and start the conversation himself to me having to look for ways to try to open the door by planting little seeds or making little references or trying to do other things. I know that makes us uncomfortable and it ruffles some feathers. But you know what? That's what we're called to. We can't use the excuse, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's not my personality. If you've got hope, you can express it. Amen?